Flat Out RC time. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. Andrew Sills, my name, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Still locked down. Uh, well, we're locked down. We're going to be out. Our restrictions are going to be eased. We're getting there. The end is near and we'll be out all flying very, very shortly. Got a good uh, guest joining us today on the Flat Out RC podcast, and that is Reeve Marsh. Reeve is uh, from Victoria, president of the VMAA, um, big into control line flying. I mentioned his name a few weeks ago on air and went, oh, maybe I should get Reeve on. Well, he's obliged, so we've got Reeve. So stay tuned for that. Now, before I forget, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Our numbers are going up and up. We want you to tell your friends, get on the Flat Out RC bandwagon, so subscribe to the podcast, and whilst you're at it, don't forget the YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, that kind of thing as well. So let's get into it. Let's have a look at what's been on my mind. A lot has been on my mind this week. Actually, not too much, actually. I had a um, really busy week with work, so I haven't had a lot of time to think about aero modelling. But I do want to remind you just very quickly Two special offers of Flat Out RC uh, listeners. The RC World, the, the shop down here in Geelong in Victoria, is offering 10% discount on NGH petrol engines. We're talking two-stroke and four-stroke petrol engines. Uh, just jump online at rcworld.com.au and use the code, let me remember this, Flat Out NGH, F-L-A-T-O-U-T-N-G-H, and you'll get a 10% discount off NGH engines. Really nice motors, good range as well. A lot of them are in stock at uh, RC World. So Flat Out NGH will get you the 10% discount. And Scale Aero Products, they are uh, offering 10% discount off all their laser cut kits. Just use the code Flat Out 10 whole range of kits available for you to purchase. Just jump onto their website at scaleaeroproducts.com.au. Use the code FLATOUT10. FLATOUT10 for FLATOUT10 to get a 10% discount off any laser cut kit. There's gliders, there's uh, old timers, there's uh, warbirds, you name it. Go and have a look. Uh, Peter there at Scale Aero Products keeps on adding more and more um, kits to the to the portfolio. So, Take a look at that. Jerry Bates kits as a rolly, you name it. Uh, he has it and you get 10% off using the code FLATOUT10. So there you go. Scalaeroproducts.com.au, rcworld.com.au. Check out the special offers there. Now, what has been on my mind this week? As I said, not too much. Really looking forward to getting out and having a fly. I was thinking... Uh, about the models that I've still got to uh, made. And I suppose if you've been through a COVID lockdown, you've finished and you've got lots and lots of models to uh, to um, get up back, get back in the air. And uh, that, I sure do. There's a couple at least. There's even some other models that I haven't flown yet um, from previous lockdowns. So I'm a bit behind the April. So really looking forward to uh, getting back to flying. But one thing that keeps me going is getting on the simulator. And uh, simulators... It's the people that like them, and the people that don't like them, and I happen to be one of those absolutely loves simulators. I fly better as a result of a simulator. Uh, I can keep my fingers dialed in uh, uh, really, really well. So uh, when I come back to flying, I'll be okay. And my brain's been trained, and and that's one of the things I want to talk about is just 
concept of how do we train our brains to become better, better pilots? And uh, because a lot of what we do is is a mental thing. Um, yes, there's a physical component to it, but as my good friend Ido Seko used to say, it's all about developing neural pathways, and that's developed by repetition. And that's true. When we repeat the movement, our our body instinctively knows what to do. I think that's why we see when when we talk about simulators is why we see a lot of people that are really like flying aerobatics, especially three D aerobatics, helicopter guys, that kind of stuff that needs a bit more need a bit more training and uh, building those neural pathways that enable you to fly in different orientations because you know flying upright we get pretty quickly, but then what about doing everything inverted or you know throwing things around a bit? It becomes different, especially with helicopters. That's just plays with your mind. So what you got to do is just repeat, and that's what the simulators allow us to do: is just to keep on repeating movements. And uh, as Ida also used to say to me, is that your brain doesn't know the difference. It's the same thing. You're just moving sticks. Uh, and a lot of people say, "Oh, well, it's not like the real thing." We know it's not like the real thing. A simulator is never going to be exactly like the real thing, but. Pushing the elevator stick does the same thing on the simulator as it does in real life. Flying a knife edge pass is the same movements on the sticks. Uh, and you know, I've, I've said this, told the story many times, but I was able to take off on land successfully in my first ever flight in a real plane because I'd done so much practice on the simulator that it really, really helped. Now, what simulator do I use? I use real flight. Uh, I used to. I started life using Phoenix, which no longer exists. I think they went out of business, but that was a pretty good simulator back in its day. We're talking about two thousand seven, um, and I reckon that was still probably going around two thousand fourteen. Maybe I can't. I don't exactly know the date. I don't have a computer in front of me at the moment, but I don't exactly know the date. But uh, got into real flight, and real flight's been a pretty stable kind of product for a long time now. Um, they do slight slight improvements, but fundamentally, it's not. You know, it was a pretty good thing out of the box, really, um, many, many years ago. So real flight seems to be the dominant simulator now um, for most people. And the good thing about it is you can get online and play with other friends. And uh, 90% of the time when I'm on the simulator, I'm actually with what I call my sim buddy. So, you know, you've heard me talking about Brad Worm. G'day, Wormy. I know you're listening. Uh, so the Wormster, um, some of the guys from my club, some of the young guys from the club um, uh, will get onto the simulator get on a chat, a voice chat, and we'll just have a chat and fly planes around, muck around a, a, a bit. And that changes the dynamic on the simulator. So, you know, try to find other people to fly with and have a chat with. If you get into real flight and you see a sim session called Flat Out RC, then uh, jump on board as long as it's not overloaded. Uh, we have a bit of fun there. So really encourage everyone, if you want to get your fix, Go and buy real flight. A, a, way, a good way to do it is there's a system called Steam. You can buy it online and download it. You don't necessarily need the disc. If you've got a transmitter and the necessary cables, because you will need a cable, then um, you can just, you, I think you might be able to buy some of the cables independently from uh, from a hobby shop or something like that, maybe for real flight. But uh, but I already had a transmitter that could plug in through the USB port into a computer and I was able to just connect that up, download Real Flight through a system called Steam, um, just S T E A M. Search for that, and you'll see it's a it's sort of a portal for downloading games. Paid the money, and then it was a pretty decent download. Took a bit of time, got it up and running, and it is sweet. Love my Real Flight. I uh, couldn't live without it, and allows me to get my fix. So take a closer look. Simulators, Real Flight. That's the one to go for. Guest time, 
which is always my favourite part of the uh, podcast. Even though I don't listen back to these podcasts, really. I do edit them, so I have to listen to my voice and whatever, but I don't really listen to them because I, I, I've lived them. I, I recorded them and I did the interviews and, uh, and I enjoyed that that experience. So this week we've got Reeve Marsh uh, joining us. And, and though this podcast is generally around radio control flight, Control line comes up now and again, especially in people's history of aero modelling. And I thought it'd be good to talk a little bit about it. But um, so I asked Reeve Marsh to come on, who is a great exponent of the art of control flying, but he also flies radio control as well. So we talk a bit about control line, of course, uh, a bit of radio control. And he also happens to be president of the VMAA and very involved with that in the administration side of the hobby, especially Victoria, but also helping out on a national level in a few different ways with the MAAA. So a good chat with Reeve. We're talking a little bit of control line. Don't hang up. This is a good one. You're not going to want to miss this one. Well, I have another special guest with me this week on the Flat Out RC podcast. Uh, it, it, if, you, if you were listening to the podcast a few weeks ago, I mentioned his name, Reeve Marsh, uh, control line guy, amongst a bunch of other things. Reeve, thanks for joining me. Hello, Andrew. Pleased to be here. Well, Reeve, we've got a lot to talk about. You know, we're going to talk about your flying. We're going to talk about you know you being the president of the VNAA and a few things around that and uh, and anything beyond that as well. But uh, look, to get started, let's let's. It's a question I ask most people: is how did you get started in aero modelling? I started when I was very young. Always had an interest in aircraft, particularly. Um, Moved into aero modelling when I was probably eight or nine. Started flying your typical small rubber-powered models and continued from there. Over the years, I've moved into different things. So having started with a small, you know, mini model type stuff, moved into bigger and more complex things, um, started some control line flying, started some RC flying, started flying rockets. Uh, one of the things that I do like about my aero modeling is that since I was about eight or nine and started, I've moved into a lot of other aspects of aero modeling, but I haven't stopped any of them. So I still fly small rubber powered models. I still fly control line, a lot of control line. I still fly rockets as well as all my RC stuff. Don't fly big RC things, but you know, over the years through school, was in um, school clubs that were aligned to aero modelling. Um, did some aero modelling achievements in scouts because that became a, a stream that was in scouts. So it's it's been a big part of my life for a long time. It's interesting you say that you, you know, a lot of us do amass different sort of categories of you know, planes to fly and, you know, disciplines and things like that. But to keep them all going at some level is just an amazing thing. Like it's I'm I'm very proud of that. I I've never considered my error modeling development as moving up. It's never that the next thing I do is better than what I've done. It's just something different. So from that perspective, I like doing the small the small rubber models. So I still do. I, I don't have many in there, you know, none of them are particularly flash. Uh, but occasionally I build new small rubber models for certain things. I built a, a P30 rubber model to take up to the um, West Wyalong Nationals a few years ago. And that was kind of a get back into some free flight stuff. But uh, like I said, I never see it as moving on to something else. It's just a new thing to play with. Yeah, well, I always say that aero modelers are very inquisitive people, and um, you know we enjoy the journey in getting that model in the in the air. Would you would you think that you definitely fit with that sort of description? I, I think so. So 
particularly people like me, sort of more the older style of people. To us, it's more about the craft. And I don't necessarily mean the manufacturing craft, but to people who have been in era modeling, starting in simple beginnings, to us, it's more about the model than just the flying. The flying's important. Uh, you know, I, I know many people like me who still like building the models, but we don't have that affinity, for instance, with static models. To us, it's the model and the flying. Um, like I said, I think very much there are a number of different types of error modelers, but I'm definitely the one who both likes the variety, but likes the variety of what we do. It is the challenge both of the, the building, the construction, the fit out of equipment, as well as the flying, and indeed the getting better at the flying. So many times there's a model that gets built and you get it flying. The next challenge is making it better, or if it's particularly aligned to a contest class, it's getting better in that contest class. So for me, the, the challenges are very broad, starting from the model all the way through to almost flying the wings off it. It makes it hard to get bored of the hobby, doesn't it, when you look at it from that perspective? <laughs> that, that is one of the things I, I have. I, I don't get bored with my era modelling because there's always a new and different project to play with. It's not like the only other thing I've got to play with is another one of the same thing. If, um, you know, if, if I'm struggling with, for instance, some finish, some paintwork, some trim colours on a model and it's just getting to me because it's it's finicky and it's not coming out the way it is, it's like, we'll move that one aside, go and get something else. And, you know, it, it might be moving on to RC installation or it might be finishing up the framework of another um, free flight model. Being able to move to lots of different things at times does keep the interest going and i think that's one of the reasons i like rockets so rockets are quick to build quick to finish quick to fly so there's almost a, a an instant return on something unlike a big complex rc model which will take weeks and weeks and weeks to do you know a, a rocket you could frame up in an afternoon if you wanted to and and that's that's a a thing you can do if you get frustrated. I like that ability to spend an afternoon solving a really complex problem and have very little physicals to show for it or get frustrated with it and move on and actually frame up something in an afternoon. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. It's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, um, you know, being in lockdown here in Victoria and observing my kids' behaviour. And I, it hit me the other day that, what did we do before we had the internet? And I think I was talking about the kids, talking to the kids was about, you know, what we used to do and how we used to behave. And it's it's like a distant memory. But we, you know, I, I was, you know, born in, what, 73? And so during that 80s period, you know, I had access to computer games and whatever. But it wasn't like the be-all and end-all. There was still this physical element to what we did versus today. And so I think, I, I, you know, a lot of us can were brought up on that, sort of thing that we we got and we got out and did stuff with our hands physical things because it wasn't all just staring at a screen whereas i think we're losing that and some of the younger demographic that i see at flying clubs yeah they'll buy foamies because they don't know how to build and they don't want to why would you need to go and build anything you just go and buy a plane that's already made and it's already already going kind of thing so i think that we're, that's a challenge i see in the hobby is that losing that it is. So certainly it's a challenge for era modelling. I think it's a challenge for most craft style pursuits. Um, well, 
sports like like physical sports still have a very strong following many of the craft style pursuits have i think suffered by um generations growing up with the new and whizzy things and we struggle we the rest of us struggle to find ways to introduce people to the pleasures of crafts so a, a lot of it is that instant um gratification so you can buy your foamy you can scoot down the park and you can fly your foamy and you might wang it around for a couple of weeks and you might break the edges off it and after a year or so you'll go and buy another foamy or you will drop out of the aero modeling hobby and go and do something entirely different um because i think it's um it's that pursuit of i can buy it i can fly it i'm done and the challenge i think for aero modeling is to grab that interest and mould it into uh, a, a broader and a longer-term error modelling attitude, because yeah, those of us who grew up not having internets and things to play with, if we weren't dedicated ball sports people, you know, we did tend to end up in you know error modelling, um, model railways, model boats. Um, the craft style pursuits, I guess, taught us to do a lot of things with our hands, and I find that a lot of that carries over into um, into current life i know someone who is a a very skilled welder machinist fabricator who is not a home handyman because he doesn't know how to use small tools <laughs> and yet for me and indeed my wife because i've always had small tools around the house you know those small jobs are just easy and i think to your point of uh, the internet um, experiences people know a lot but they've not done a lot with their hands and that that is a challenge for error modeling yeah it is i want to take you back a bit because you talked about um whizzy things and <laughs> and, and it leads me into control line flying and how you got into Go that and call them yo-yos well, yes. well you know, <laughs> there is my view of control line is when i was a kid um i probably came into the hobby and well, got interested in the hobby in that next era when radio control sort of started to take off but there were still um, like a friend of mine whose father was a control liner, and you know, back in when he was a younger age, and he ended up building one. This I'm talking about the sort of the eighties here, and I liked the idea of it. And then I suppose I haven't a lot, of, haven't had a lot of exposure to control line flying, but I, I was at an event down in um, Gippsland Way down at Sale, and I saw a guy flying control line, and went, "Oh my god, I'd never seen someone fly aerobatics with a control line." And we just sat ah. there mesmerized. And what I see is that. When other people see control line flying, like that, it sparks some sort of, you know, enjoyment and interest to maybe want to participate. Now, how did you get into the control line flying scene way back when? Now we're going to touch on one of the challenges of error modelling. I got into, I guess, something beyond me just messing about with small rubber powered models because I tripped over my local club. They were just there in the suburbs and you you have that physical presence that people can see so the ability to go to a uh, an aero modeling club talk to the people see what's going on very powerful they were predominantly a control line club and i was aware of control line and was considering that you know that was something i could do i talked to a few friends about what it is and um mixing with people who were already skilled 
proponents of control line allows you to you know, understand where to where to go with some of these things, build the competence, build the confidence in doing what you do. So sadly, that club no longer exists, but that was uh, a very long running club from probably nearly the 50s, started in Oakley, moved out through Parkdale, ended up at Springvale. But I think that is one of the challenges we as era modelers have as we move to um, bigger facilities to be able to fly some of our more serious equipment, we lose visibility. So people these days find it hard to move into error modeling as opposed to buying a foamy off the internet because we're not visible. They can't find us. They don't know where we are. They don't see us as they drive past. I think that's very true. And uh, a lot of people that I interview started with control line and I've asked this question of them before and that is, you know, did you get into control line flying because you saw somebody else doing it at the local park? You know, we're going to talk about the 60s here kind of thing is that it seemed like there are so many people that I talk to that say, yeah, I, I, when I was a kid, yep. I had a control line model. And I, I think seeing it helps spread it. We've got things like YouTube that can help spread messages and things like that. But it's, it's you know, it's hard to get the get the attention on on, on that kind of stuff. But it's, unless it's crash videos on YouTube, they do very, very well. <laughs> the people do. love to see crashes. But yeah, the control line thing, you know, I think that it grew on the back of that, um, that people just seeing it. What was your first control line model? Oh, just a small two and a half cc trainer, just a a, a very standard thing in Australia. Um, it, it's kind of the, well, it's the sort of thing that most people in Australia start on something around about that size, just all solid wood, robust, able to be bounced, usually because they get bounced. I know certainly mine got bounced. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, rapidly moved from there into aerobatics. So aerobatics became the first thing I focused on. I've never been very good. I, I, I guess I'm competent. So in most control line categories, I am a competent aerobatics pilot. But yeah, you know, I started getting into some aerobatics, then moved into combat and racing as well. Um, have dabbled in speed along the way, getting a bit more serious about speed again was for a few years. But yeah, I guess my progression through control line, like I say, very typical for you know the Australian world, small two and a half size trainer of something, then something a bit bigger with a built up wing and you start to fly aerobatics and then you start to fly combat because you can fly aerobatics and then you decide you like it's all going fast in the combat thing, so you build a racing model, and and then you end up flying all of them. That's true. Now, there's a question that I should have asked earlier that there may be some people out there because a lot of the audience are radio control flies, and, and you fly radio control as well. But explain a control line model and how it works. Let's just get back to the basics. I was actually going to touch on this from a comment you made before about. Um, seeing control line on uh, social media platforms and it being different to finding your local club. It's actually a little bit hard to explain without things to see and touch. And I think that is one of the challenges with some of the less than obvious elements of error modeling generally. While you can put up good segments on the internet, podcasts like this unnecessary to have the conversation around what's involved because most people who see YouTube video are really just looking at it for the entertainment value, as you say, crash videos. So control lines, much easier to explain. And, you know, the, the, 
if you've got something in front of you, and that tends to lend itself well to explainer videos on YouTube rather than flying, whereas going to a physical club and seeing someone actually fly and having them demonstrate how it works is usually one of those, wow, that just seems really simple. And that's because it is. The Essentially, the aeroplane just flies, in a simplistic sense, around in a circle with the pilot at the centre, and the model is tethered to a handle that the pilot holds. The lines that run from the handle out to the model connect up to a mechanism in a way that allows the handle to move the mechanism, which pushes a push rod backwards and forwards, which controls the movement of the elevator. The model is set up to try to fly away from the pilot, which means that as long as the lines are strong enough, and we fly off steel wires predominantly, so yes, they're strong enough, the model holds itself tight on the ends of these steel wires that go from the model to the handle. The pilot simply turns around in a very small circle in the middle. Aeroplane flies around the pilot. The pilot moves the handle up and down to move the elevator, can make the aeroplane fly higher or lower. And then the more advanced models can be looped over onto their back, fly upside down, and then really aerobatic models can do, as you saw down at uh, the, the club down in Gippsland, quite complex aerobatics and certainly watching control on combat model is is difficult to describe the aerobatics they're small they're tight they're complex they're all happening at 90 mile an hour but yeah as, as you get past it all of this is essentially done with nothing more control than the elevator the the rudder is not used other than to make sure the plane stays at the end of the lines. The ailerons are not used in a control sense. There's an element of trimming to make sure the model flies happily, but everything else, it's just elevator control. Yeah. Well, have they ever introduced like throttle control into a control line model? Throttle control is used a lot on control line. It's not used. Um, it's not used frequently, typically because a lot of the contest classes don't use throttle, but throttle is commonly used on scale and scale-ish models. Uh, Australia has a number of very good scale models, including some people who have flown control line scale at world championships, and a control line scale model requires the use of throttle because it allows an appropriate um pattern of behavior. So it's a slow controlled takeoff to a nice height. It's demonstrating a cruise speed. It's being able to do things like touch and goes and controlled landings and taxis on the ground. So scale models particularly use throttle. The other common use for throttle on control line is in an event that is simply called carrier. It's a uh, an adaptation of uh, a model form of flying a model off an aircraft carrier. So the whole idea is you have a model that takes off from a flat area, which represents the aircraft carrier. Then after flying around fast and slow, you have to land back on the carrier. So this does require a throttle to be able to fly slow, and it requires a throttle to be able to fly slow enough to land back on the carrier. The carrier landing is a bit spectacular because we actually use arrestor wires as well. So we have little arrestor wires set up across one end of the carrier and there is a hook that you drop from the back of the model. And the idea is to carefully guide the model onto the back end of the carrier and hope that your hook snags one of the arrestor wires. Job done. That, is, that would be so much fun to watch. 
Oh, it is fun to watch and it's really fun to fly. It's actually quite hard because you do have to remember exactly where the carrier is because it's not like you're always standing still in the one spot. So very hard to judge, but good pilots are really good. You get points for how fast you can go compared to how slow you can go and you get points for how efficiently you get hooked up on the deck and a good carrier pilot can hook up on the deck on the first attempt. And and that is spectacular to watch. That'd be great to watch. I'd, I'd love that. When how do you trigger the throttle control? So the throttle is traditionally done with a third wire. So the mechanicals at the model are slightly different, and you use a special handle. And the special handle can be fairly simple or fairly complex, but essentially it allows the normal movement of the elevator wires as well as movement of a third wire, which controls the throttle control. More and more these days, both in scale and indeed starting to become common in carrier, we actually use a small 2.4 gigahertz radio set up on the handle to control the throttle. So the whole mechanical setup is just like a traditional control line model. And then you have a 2.4 gigahertz link operating a servo in the model to control the throttle. That's cool. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's cool it's a little bit simpler to get set up it's a little bit more fiddly because of course you've got more things going on inside the model that you have to be able to service so typically the mechanical linkage once you've built it you can seal up the model and glue all the bits down and it's job done um, whereas servos you do need to be able to reach them and service them if necessary replace them and, and of course there is then the the slightly larger bulk of the control at the pilot's end. Some people have a small transmitter on the handle. Some people use a hip-mounted control. So you fly with one hand and you operate the throttle with your other hand off this hip-mounted box. But there's a number of different ways to do this. But again, we get back to it's really hard to hear how that works. But if I put it on on a table in front of you, it would make perfect sense to you. You'd be able to see where all the bits are and how all the bits work and you go, oh, is that how it does it? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a plethora of uh, disciplines within control line. Um, we've talked about aerobatics, and we sometimes see videos on YouTube of it must be a speed event or something where you've got multiple people inside the circle all spinning around doing a dance in very close, <laughs> um, non-COVID-safe environments. What's that? Uh, one of the... One of the facets of control line racing that has been around in a very professionally um, executed sense since kind of the 50s is team racing. And this is what you're talking about. There are typically three teams of a pilot and a pit man each, and all the pilots stay in the middle and fly the model. All the pit men stand on the outside and start the motor, fuel the model, and a tank restriction. So you end up having to refuel to complete the required distance of the race. So three teams, all three models get started at the start. You fly around till you run out of fuel, you land, your pit person refuels it, restarts it, and off you go again. Uh, at, at the club level, this is still quite an exacting art, but probably many of the videos that run around on YouTube are of the top international class, which just goes by its name of F2C. It's just a an international class designation, but it is the top level of team race. This is very specialized equipment, very specialized practices. The people who are good at F2C have practiced a lot. Uh, 
And interestingly, Australia is one of the top countries in F2C and we have people who have been world champions more than once at um, F2C. So we've got teams that have topped the world. It's, it's interesting that that is the case because we don't hear a lot about control line flying and I always hear about radio control sort of dominating. But uh, we had, was there world championships in Australia in recent times or something? Or There was a few years ago. There was control line world championships over in Perth. That's right. And Australia did really well there. Australia always does very well. Um, control line is, Australia is very good at control line things, but we tend to um, be disadvantaged by the inability to have a lot of high level competition. So team race is probably the, uh, the, the main discipline that we can compete amongst ourselves to get as good as the rest of the world. The challenge with flying aerobatics is that you are judged by different judges. So unless you're flying with other people in other countries in front of other judges, you don't always know exactly what the judges might be looking for. And it's often quite difficult to then simply fly a few thousand kilometers across to Europe and put in a good aerobatics pattern, despite the fact that Australia has excellent control and aerobatics pilots, just knowing how to put in a good pattern is really hard. Whereas you look at the guys out of Japan, China, the US, Europe, these guys are flying in lots of different contests in lots of different places in front of lots of different judges. And that's just an advantage. That'd be true. I, I am amazed. If anyone hasn't seen control on aerobatics, just you've got to get out there and just look on the internet or whatever find your local club that's got some people. It is just an amazing sight to watch. When you think about it, it's all just done with the elevator. Yep. It's- so so again, I'm not an expert. I'm competent, but I'm not an expert. But one of the things I do like teasing my RC colleagues about is when we are talking about aerobatics, I always insist that my aerobatics colleagues on the RC side start flying their pattern six feet off the ground. Because, of course, that's what control line aerobatics is. Yeah. The bottom of all the manoeuvres is at six feet height. Yeah. You, you don't get any choice to fly 200 <laughs> feet in the air. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not like uh, 10 crashes high, as some people say. Yeah, yeah. there's none of that. Well, it's – it's a, a number of years back, I was driving along in the car, and my son was eight years of age at the time, and he said to me, just out of the blue, he said, Daddy, what are those planes that you fly around and you're connected to it? And I said, control line. And he said, I think I could do that. And I said, well, why do you think you could do that? And he said, because I'm touching it. I'm connected to it. And I thought it was, it was sort of a, a different view. And literally, he was just looking out the windows of driving in the country when he said that to me. And I thought, do you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Is is it hard to fly a control line plane? And is, would that be a good angle to get kids into it, really? It. I'll actually come from a couple of different aspects there. One of the reasons I do still like control line is absolutely that physical connection. It is a different feel of flying a model compared to RC or indeed free flight. And they all have different attractions. But for me, control line is that physical connection. I'm holding on to something. I can feel what it's doing. Uh, There is considerable acceleration in either flying aerobatic six feet off the ground or hanging on to an aeroplane that's doing 100 mile an hour. Uh, that that physical aspect is different to anything you get anywhere else. Control line is relatively easy to get to learn and probably as easy to learn as, um, as flying with a buddy box 
for learning to fly RC with the right trainer. And one of the things that we do lack is, uh, I guess, a lot of people who get into training people to fly control line. The typical traditional way of learning control line is you do this, you do this, hold this hand, hold the handle, I'll set the aeroplane off and see how you go. Uh, whereas a, a much more, a much more um, comforting approach that I've found is that I, as, as an instructor, I fly with the new person. And I would say your eight-year-old son would be easily able to pick up control line. The coordination required is not significant. And the only real skill to learn is that walking in a small circle in the middle, because a lot of people think themselves out of it and can't deal with it. They often get stuck into simply spinning around in a circle and get really dizzy, but there are techniques to avoid that. And once you get the hang of the techniques, flying a control line model makes you no more dizzy than just standing up. But um, teaching young people to fly is really easy in control line. I regularly do come and try days at displays where we're allowed to, and that might be more of a challenge in our new normal, where I have allowed children probably as young as five to hold a handle while we're flying. And essentially, I, with their parents' permission, pick them up, put them on one hip and hold the handle in front of them and say, put your hand in there, let's go. And that that physical touching is, I think, something that does interest people in flying aeroplanes. You know, flying RC is good and a technically amazing challenge. And the flying skill is incredible to fly good RC. But yeah, a lot of people do find that holding on to something to be a rather different experience and easy enough to pick up though. Well, you mentioned dizziness and that was going to be my next question because I see control on flying and think, oh, I'm probably going to trip over my feet or I'm going to get dizzy. What is the technique that at a, at a high level uh, that is involved in, in preventing yourself from tripping over your feet and not getting dizzy? You walk a small circle. So you always walk forward and turn left. So instead of standing still and spinning around, you just walk forwards. But as you walk forwards, you turn left, assuming that's the way the model goes. Some people set their airplanes up to fly the other way, but predominantly control line models fly so that you just walk a small circle and turn left. Uh, and essentially that means you take a small step with your left foot and a big step with your right foot, small step with your left foot, big step with your right foot. And once you get the hang of just doing that and you know you can imagine either walking around another person who's standing still or walking around a tree or a pole once you get the hang of that you concentrate on looking at the airplane and not the background whizzing past you most people get over that dizziness really quickly that makes a lot of sense i never thought of that that's what i love about this podcast i learn <laughs> new things every week and i because you yeah you're work, walking a circle. And then as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the videos that I've watched on YouTube of, you know, the competition that I was mentioning earlier. Thinking, oh, yeah, they're not standing in that one spot. They're actually walking Correct. around in a circle. That, you know, because, yeah, you're not just spinning around. Oh, yeah, that makes, that makes yeah. it a lot and, of sense. And, again, it's one of the things that is really easy to demonstrate actually on a flying field. You, you have a person there. You show them what you do and people get it. YouTube videos, people just watch for the entertainment. They're not usually paying attention to small things like that because they don't know it's important. And, of course, they shouldn't think that it's important because they don't know it's needed to be important. But, yeah, you get people to a club. You get people on the flying field. You show them what you do. People get it very quickly. Okay, so that brings me to that next thing. So you want to get into control line flying and it sounds as if – 
you know, getting into a club environment and then learning from some experienced hands is always the best option. Let's talk about, okay, where do you get control line models nowadays? Because I remember walking into hobby shops back in the day and you'd see those Cox, PT, whatever, PT9s or PT19s, whatever, the blue and yellow yep. plastic kicks with the 049 Cox at the front. They were everywhere. Every shop yep. had them, right? Where do you go nowadays? You know, how accessible is getting control line gear? Uh, so the answer to where do you go is the answer that applies to everything. Your mail order off the internet. Unfortunately, because control on is quite a niche element of error modeling, it's not as mainstream as it used to be. So very few hobby shops, whether they be some of the bigger um, broad-based hobby shops or even some of the smaller local ones, actually carry control line gear. There are a couple of people who do have websites uh, that you can order from and, and, you know, a simple website search will show up these places, but predominantly it is mail order from specialist sites. The challenge with that is, of course, the knowing what to buy. And this is where it gets back to having that knowledgeable person help you along, getting into a club, seeing what people fly, seeing how they work, knowing what it is you can then uh, purchase to to bring your whole thing together and, and again this is the difference to that that um non um I'm, I'm trying to trying to not offend people but that non-serious modeler rc so all of your foamies and you're ready to fly stuff People can simply buy it and the instructions show you how to set it up. And notwithstanding, it probably needs to be adjusted to be a good flyer. They've done the thing they need to do to make an aeroplane. Control line doesn't fit into that space as well, simply because it requires a bit more of the mechanical setup. There are almost ready to fly control line kits available, but there's not many of them. And again, you know, most people in Australia don't carry them on the shelves, so it's a mail order thing. But yeah, the answer is, Quick internet search, uh, mail order the bits and pieces you need, but some knowledgeable instruction will certainly make that a lot easier to find the, the right things you need. And you can buy everything from specific control on engines, so engines that don't have a throttle that you need to lock open in some way, which still works, uh, through to ready-made sets of lines and, and handles so that you just have an aeroplane, hook your lines up, hook your handle up, and away you go. That makes a lot of sense. Magic of the internet. (laughs) So if you want to get into control line, best tip, get online and have a look. But from what you're telling me, I think you've got to go, go to your local club and find some people that fly control line and just get, get the, get pointed in the right direction. So I dare say, you know, I've seen slow control line planes and fast control line planes. So I think selecting that right model probably be imperative, um, to get you started. Absolutely. It's no different to RC. Uh, while you can just buy uh, a foamy or an, uh, an ART, ARTF and go out and fly, your level of success will depend upon how lucky you get. Um, RC is no different. Good instruction, good guidance on what to start with and how to set it up and how to fly it just as easily applies to control line. Um, you know, many of us of my vintage, we learned to fly by ourselves. We did that whole fly it, stack it, fly it, stack it, fly it, stack it. Uh, but it is really quite easy to have an experienced person just help you in. If you can find a local club, go down, talk to them, see how it works, get some advice on what bits to put together, order the relevant things off the internet and, and away you go. It, it's quite easy to get into with the right help. 
we, we hear that time and time again that, you know, there's always go to an experienced person, they'll point in the right direction. Not everybody takes that advice and we see it a no. lot. And, <laughs> and uh, they get down to the fielding with radio control gear and do something stupid and, um, you know, learn, learn from mistakes. But, yeah, just stick to what's been proven, I reckon. What, yep. how, how many control line models do you own? Oh, lots. Well, how many? M- many, how many lots. Well, you're a true aero modeler, aren't you? <laughs> so the last time I looked and counted, I think I've got something like 20 flyable control line models. And that doesn't count the probably six, seven, eight, nine that are in various states of build. So yet to be built. And the odd occasional, I think I've only got two or three in this state of, well, they're a bit repaired and I, a bit broken and I haven't repaired them yet and may not. Yeah. And then I've got kind of 10 or 15 RC models. True aero modeler right there. What wingspan are we talking about with the average control line model? Because they're generally not two-meter wingspan, but how small do they get and how big do they get? Yeah, so small small models are still common and used a lot. The, the, the nice size for a control line model is around about the – one metre to one and a half metre wingspan. They're big enough that they fly well enough, even if there's a bit of a breeze around, but they're not too big and therefore too heavy to be able to fly. Certainly you can fly bigger and heavier things and it's just harder work and you can easily fly smaller things. They just don't react as well in windy conditions. Actually... Can you, what's that, describe flying in windy conditions because you're going around in circles. How does the wind affect the model? Because you're whirling around in the wind. Depending upon how bad the wind is, once the model is flying, the wind doesn't have a, a very significant effect. So if the wind is around about, say, 15 kilometres an hour, which is you know, a gentle breeze, the model is typically flying at, 60 or 65 kilometers an hour. So the model simply goes from flying a bit slower than 60 Ks to a bit faster than 60 Ks. It's not a huge change. There are some times in some models where the model does become a bit skittish on the upwind side of the circle. And that's just a skill to learn in that you you are careful as you fly on that side of the circle. And particularly you don't try and fly aerobatics upwind on a windy day because that can be quite a challenge but the answer to flying in the wind is more power so a a very powerful model doesn't know there's a wind blowing and i I have a couple of uh well i have four display models i use they're very simple they're foam wings they're just planks of wood for a, a fuselage and they're a reasonable size and they're, they're made to look a little bit like a World War II fighter. But they're set up for displays because they're simple to operate, simple to fly, and they've got far more power than they would really need just to fly as a nice aerobatics model. But the point to that is that they'll fly in almost any weather conditions. You, you just start them and fly them and they will fly. And they're a bit like a combat model in that regard. So modern combat models have more than enough power to fly almost regardless of the wind. If you can stand up in it, you can probably fly in it with you've got enough power. 
You've got to love it when the answer to everything is more power. More power. <laughs> we're all sitting there going, yeah, more power. Let's more do power. it. <laughs> when you talk about combat models, literally are there two planes trying to run into each other kind of thing? So, yeah, combat is a, a discipline of control and where you fly two at a time and each model f- trails a crate paper streamer. And as you are flying together, so you've got two pilots in the centre and the models are therefore flying in the same circle but it's kind of a hemisphere by the time you can fly up and down and the idea is to chase your opponent and cut little pieces off the other person's streamer most of the contest categories are set up to encourage taking small pieces of streamer because you get more points for it well, you get you get points for each cut so the more chop of a streamer you do the more points you get if you take the whole streamer at once you still only get the points for one cut so you you, you handicap yourself. The Americans used to fly a different set of rules, which is a little bit more um, interesting, which used to be along the lines of if you cut the whole streamer off, you won the bout. If you hit the other model and broke it in half, you didn't lose. So that encouraged people to aim less for the streamer and more for the back of the model. <laughs> a bit more serious. And here here in Australia, many years ago, and I'm talking the 60s and 70s, we used to fly a variety of combat that had more than two in the circle. And sometimes you would have as many as seven people all flying at once in the same circle, all seven models trailing a streamer. Not surprisingly, it was called Butcher's Picnic. <laughs> it's amazing. People love combat models, even radio control. It just sort of gets everybody excited and uh loosens up it does but, um yep I've, I've seen it actually at a, at a, a display day at a club once the um the combat stuff uh, planes did end up hitting the ground but um, that happens yeah now well that's good like i know that everything we've talked about even people that are into radio control will be intrigued because a lot of us like to learn about other dis- disciplines and and that kind of stuff you know when it comes to your radio control flying how much are you dabbling in that and what sort of area are you dabbling in uh, so I started flying control, uh, flying radio control, I was probably 15, 16. Um, my first love in RC is gliders. So I fly a lot of gliders. I don't have some big ones, but, you know, your typical 2.5, 2.7 metre glider, thermal gliders, that's, that's the kind of stuff I fly a lot of. I started to get into electric, so I have a lot of electric gliders as well now. Um, uh, and I do fly small park fly size electric scale models. So these are all, you know, scratch built or plan built. So the, you know, stick and tissue type models with small brushed or brushless motors in them. Then, you know, these things are probably only of the order of maybe 800, 900 millimeter wingspan. Um, they're, they're obviously for light days, but yeah, my small park fly electrics love them and gliders. That's kind of where I play most. Yeah, I like that. I like the sound of all that. I, I didn't realise you were so active. Oh, well, I do get out and fly a lot. I guess I don't fly a lot with other clubs. I don't tend to do a lot of flying visits to clubs, something that I'm sure we'll come to later in a different role. I do visit a lot of clubs, but when I do that, I'm usually there to visit, whereas my flying I do at my clubs. Yeah. What clubs are you a member of? So primarily I'm a member of the Western Port Model Aircraft Club uh, down just past Hastings and the Knox Model Aircraft Club in at uh, Knox, 
funnily enough, uh, just off Stud Road. Um, that's predominantly a control line club, although there's a few of us who do fly RC as well, but the field is a control line field. Uh, I do fly with other people, so I often fly down at the control line field at Frankston, so Clam F, they're a, a strong control line club, and I fly there a lot. And I do occasionally pop out to fly, if you like, guest control line um, slots with, uh, I've done that with people like uh, Greensboro, um, uh, Doncaster, um, Varms, those sorts of clubs. But yeah, I, I do visit lots of clubs, but less so for flying. Predominantly, I fly at by the Western Port or at the Knox Model Aircraft Club. Well, we're going to talk about this role now, the and that is <laughs> as the the VMAA president. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, the the MAAAs like the, uh, the the Flying Association in Australia and in Model Flying Association, that is, and in each state there are different chapters, and uh, the VMAA is a Victorian state chapter, and Reeve is the president of that. What led you to being involved in the committee at the VMAA? Um. A simple feeling that I could help. So I've actually been involved at club level almost since I started. So even when I was 15, 16, I was in various ways some kind of officer within the club, whether it was the secretary or the contest director. Then probably in my early 20s, I started to realise that being part of the the surrounding structure beyond the club was important to find out about things, to have a voice in things. So I started moving into some subcommittees that the VMAA had around about then. And, and as I say, that was an involvement in what the VMAA was doing, which was then an involvement in what the MAAA was doing. Um, as you explained, the MAAA is the Australian, what well, is the sanctioned Australian Aeromodeling Association, which is adjoined to the international aeromodelling associations who run world championships. So the competition side of aeromodelling here in Australia is is a linkage up from the club through the VMAA, MAAA into the FAI, the, the international body. So I started hanging around the, the VMAA, like I said, a couple of subcommittees um, to, to, to help that communications channel. Um, I, I stepped away from the VMAA as a couple of different subcommittees changed over time. I encouraged a couple of different people to get into the VMAA committee level while I wasn't. Um, and part of that is a, a time and energy thing. So, you know, as we, as we all have families and careers and other things we're doing, we have more or less time to do things. But in the last you know, maybe 10 years, I, I've had more time to uh, recommit to that administrative level and that join of communications. So I started hanging back around the VMAA. In between times, I was a, a conduit to the MAAA as a control line specialist. So part of a rules committee and, and part of a, uh, an advisory group for the MAAA, which has now joined up both through the state associations and there now we now have things called special interest groups that predominantly cover that. So then when I got back to the VMAA, it was, well, I'm just here to help. And over a few years, it turned into the role that I could help in changed and morphed. And a few people suggested that I ought to be the president. And I seem to have done that now and I seem to be stuck there at the moment, which is fine. 
I, I'm very happy with it. And as long as the clubs think I, I'm helping the VMAA do a good job, I'm happy to continue to be the VMAA president. But yeah, it wasn't a, by no means was it a design, but it was very much that how can I help? How can I make sure the communications works for clubs and error modelers? And that includes linkages up to the MAAA. So in my role as VMAA president, I am also a significant part of the MAAA organization. So uh, assisting with the, the structures, directions, documentations, processes that the MAAA had a bit of a cutout then where in the internet, but uh, Reeve is back. But I was going to say, <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Reeve, that uh, that I always, I'm not going to pump your tyres up too much so you get a really big head, but I always say that somebody has to stand up to represent us. And there's such, there's such a negative connotation along, around um, different hobbies towards committee members and things like that, that, oh, you know, they're trying to ruin it for us and that kind of stuff. But someone has to stand up and do the job. And so, first of all, thank you for doing that because it's, you know, you and I know that it does take a lot of time. And I want to ask you just a question about that, is that mm-hmm. how do you juggle that VMAA work with your personal work? You know, how much work does it actually involve in being the president of, of that state chapter in Victoria here? Um, someone far cleverer and far more famous than I said, if you love what you're doing, it's not work. How much time do I put into it? A lot. How much work? Well, I guess it gets down to what you consider work. So I see much of what I do both at my clubs and indeed the VMAA and in the MAAA and also any input into the FAI structures can be seen as a quite selfish role because largely what I am doing is making sure that error modeling continues to be a relevant and viable thing. And that means I can fly. And I'm no more selfish than anybody else, but I'm no less selfish than anybody else. So if I am able to keep flying, that's a good thing. And and yeah, there is, it is slightly more altruistic than that. It is making sure that we have good organizations and processes, but um, the amount of work involved is considerable and this gets to the comment i made before it's about having the time and the energy and the interest and that's why people come and go across committees and the trick is catching people when they do have the time and the energy and the interest Uh, different roles on different committees always have different amounts of effort so typically the secretary is a heavy administrative role but yes the president's role there are many phone calls many emails all of these are done during the evenings or sometimes late at night. Um, I do fit them in during the day. I am lucky enough that my work life is as a consultant, so I often have quite flexible approaches to what I need to do. But there is also a lot of meetings, consultations, you know, joint committees that have to be worked through. Um, I don't count up the hours because I don't actually think that's terribly productive. It kind of gets to if you can do it, do it. But I would say that if you think this is just a couple of phone calls a week and a couple of emails a month, you are well underestimating any role on any committee and particularly that at a state level like the VMAA. Yeah, that'd be true. Just give us uh, an example of the kind of things at a high level that you would be working on. So the sorts of things that the VMAA works on a lot currently is trying to interpret, for instance, the health regulations that govern whether we can fly. Um, It's important that people remember that the VMAA 
doesn't set any rules that um, override government legislation. So it's not as if the VMAA can say whether or not a, a club or an era modeler can do things. But what we try to do is describe which parts of things are relevant in those regulations to the operation of a model aircraft club. So there's a lot of things in the health directives, but what we've done in the past couple of communications is tried to summarize the important points. You need to um, follow the various rules and that includes at the moment here in Victoria, masks when you're outside, well, sorry, in, in metropolitan area or in locked down areas, masks when you're outside, um, small groups of people um, at the moment, us lucky Melburnians aren't allowed to travel more than 15 kilometres from our homes. So it's showing the clubs which bits of all of those things are relevant and helping them focus then on those particular pieces. At a, a broader level, it's then the same sort of thing. So there are many clubs who have questions that come to the VMAA around council bylaws. So a council will have a lot of impact on what we can and can't do. And the VMAA acts as an ability to try and decipher some of that for the clubs and how that works. Uh, and likewise at a national level. So the VMAA feeding up into the MAAA, a lot of our effort goes into helping clubs work within the CASA guidelines. So CASA being the Australian aviation regulator, um, the guidelines and regulations that CASA have set a set of rules that all clubs must abide by. But my philosophy, particularly at the VMAA level, is there is no point in every person in every club trying to make sense of every set of regulation. If the VMAA can make sense of regulation and communicate what that looks like, we've saved 80 odd clubs the trouble of doing it themselves. So we spend a lot of time on what does CASA mean? What do the CASA regulations mean? The paperwork that you need to submit through CASA to get, for instance, extended height clearances, how how you can operate when you're in certain areas and whether that's close to an airport. If the VMAA can decipher that sort of stuff for the clubs, that just helps the clubs having to decipher it for themselves. So we put a lot of effort into that CASA side as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work that you do behind the scenes in supporting clubs, not only regulations and things like that, but also, you know, grants that you can give to support grants, uh, loan schemes, all those kind of things, I think, add a lot of value to the club club system. I like to think so. So on a broader level than that, that, that direct regulation sense, we are here to help clubs. So even if clubs just have questions about something in their day-to-day -day operation. Um, the, the, I see the VMAA as the best conduit for that. I see any of your state associations. Um, in other states, we have similar organisations. So clubs might be just trying to understand, for instance, how to run a display day. Uh, they might never have done one before. They might just want some advice on that. And the VMAA is well-placed to put them in contact with people who might have done this before. That then spreads to uh, logistical and financial support. So if a club is trying to do something, often it turns into they would like to do it, but they don't have the wherewithal to get that done. The VMAA does have some equipment that we can loan out to clubs uh, to, to help them for either their, their um special days, the display days, the come and try days. We have people who can help with those sorts of things as well. Um, but yeah, we do also then understand that by by having an element of financial interest in the clubs through fees, 
we should be helping clubs do what they need to do. That doesn't mean the VMAA is a bank. The VMAA is categorically not a bank, but the VMAA has the ability to use that consolidated funds in a way that a club can't. And if that helps with either a small grant or an interest-free loan, so the club understands that financially it can manage it, it just can't put the whole number together in a particular year, then uh, something like an interest-free loan is something the VMAA can provide. I think the VMAA helping clubs do what clubs need to do is categorically the role of the VMAA. If we're not here to help clubs do what they want to do, then I don't know what we're doing. Well, I think one of the... um... I've been a very strong supporter of the VMAA down here in establishing uh, state fields that I think here in Victoria, we're very fortunate. I think there were about four state fields that the VMAA is invested in, in pockets of land in the north, south, almost east and west kind of, of, uh, of the state to secure flying locations, though some of them may not be extremely local to us, that over time it may be some of the only options that we've got. There are other states that have not followed in that path in that that investment in land and have, have sort of taken other paths by supporting, say, other clubs to stay viable. What are your thoughts on, on, on that matter in, re- in relation to investment in fields and versus the alternative? I think fields owned by the associations, so some are owned at the state level, some are owned at the national level. We tend to just call them state fields. That's largely because they're in the states. But for instance, VMAA owns a couple and the MAAA leases a couple to the, the Victorian associations as they do in other states. I think these are desperately important. Long term, if you look at the most pessimistic view, it might be, as you say, the only way we can fly by flying on pieces of land that we actually own. There's a lot of effort involved in getting these things up. And I think to your point of Victoria having four, which might be more than many other states, that's largely not due to me. I think it's a thing that absolutely needs support. We need to keep doing it. It's a great idea. But my predecessors were the ones who set us up this well. There was a lot of work by some people on the VMAA and indeed on the MAAA who had the foresight to bring this program in. And they recognised that while it might not be tomorrow, there is a time where having security on a piece of property is the best way to have a model flying field. And that program very much led to what you see today. And, and as you were saying, currently Victoria has a reasonable spread of fields across the state. And while they're not all easy to get to for those of us in the suburbs, Certainly the one north of the city at Darrowick Wim is not too far out of the north of the city. And indeed the one at the west of the city is not very far away from places like Werribee. Um, But the spread of the fields was largely to ensure that most places had a field within a couple of hours that they can access. And it's important to remember too that what we term as a state field is genuinely a VMAA field. There is a host club that operates the flying field but every member of the VMAA and indeed the MAAA has free visitor rights. That doesn't mean they get a key to the gate, but it does mean they can just contact the club and say, I would like to come and fly. Can you let me in, please? You just have to abide by all the appropriate protocols, procedures to you know, follow safety, park where you're supposed to fly like you do at any club. But you don't need to join the club as a VMAA affiliate. You are 
you have rights to attend that club and fly at it. There are some limitations simply because we do also insist that our state fields host big events. So sometimes many of our special interest groups or our state championships are run at those state fields. So you can't always get on the flying field. And like I say, you can't be there unattended because our host clubs are responsible for ensuring that that asset stays in good shape. But it's also important to remember that the host club puts a lot of money into their own state fields too. So while the VMAA may assist with funding the field through the MAAA typically, and may contribute to some of the initial setup and some of the baseline maintenance, many of the improvements you see on some of these fields, things like clubhouses, are actually the the product of the members of the clubs, the host club. The host clubs are doing the fundraising. The host clubs are raising um, donations from local businesses to be able to put up things like clubhouses or shade shelters or improve runways, those sorts of things. But I think, yeah, state fields are a big part of where we need to go. We need to keep doing it. In the foreseeable future, I hope we don't get to the point where that's the only thing but I think it still gives us a good solid future, even if we continue to lease or, or, or rent just local land from councils or other private groups. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big supporter of it. I think it's great. And, um, and one thing I just want to add to that is that if you are going to a state field and it is basically become your, your main club, join the host club and just give them some support. And even though you're entitled to go and fly there, I think it, uh, we've got to be reasonable about that, that um, they put in a lot of work. Correct. They they do. And, and it becomes a two-way street. So as you say, it's important to support our host clubs. And, and that includes, you know, following the, the, the club rules and guidelines while you're there. But yes, if a, if a state field is close enough that you want to attend regularly, joining that host club gives you the additional unfettered rights. So you, you, know, you get your own key for a start. So you can show up without having to ring someone and get yourself let in. So there are advantages to being a member of the club beyond just being a VMAA person. But I think it's important for us all to remember at the VMAA level that all VMAA affiliates ha- have a piece of that pie. Mm, that's true. That is true. It's interesting. I find that, um, you know, especially in the past you know, couple of years during this COVID time, a lot of clubs and committees at clubs have looked to the VMAA for direction as to what they should do in relation to different decisions, whether primarily around opening up their club or not opening a club and COVID restrictions. And And I've always promoted the fact that the MAAA, the VMAA doesn't own the club. They're, they're independent Correct. entities that just happen to affiliate with the MAAA and the VMAA, et cetera, for a, a few aspects of the function of the club. But it surprises me how many clubs are just can't wait for the VMAA email to come out that tells them what to do. And the interesting thing is that the VMAA has never told the club what to do. You just state the facts to allow people to make a decision. Now, in light of that and the current situation, a couple of weeks ago, I had a bit of a rant about, you know, people, there are modelers doing the right thing and, um, yeah, it caused a bit of a ruckus amongst a few people, but, you know, oh, well. Uh What's your current stance in relation to COVID regulations and whether clubs should be open or not? Running back over the the topic you just described, I, I as I mentioned before, I'm very comfortable that the VMAA should be available for clubs to ask for guidance. So if clubs don't understand what some of these regulations mean to clubs being able to operate, absolutely 
contact the VMAA, we can give you guidance on what that means. It is important to remember that the VMAA does not own the clubs. Clubs are their own institution, especially if they're an incorporated association, they are their own legal entity. And the MAAA likewise can't tell a club what to do with a particular fine point. The VMAA and the MAAA are the framework within which our clubs all operate. And the things that the VMAA and the MAAA structure provides are things like that linkage to CASA that I talked about before. And we have a very strong voice at CASA, which very few organisations, even non-era modelling aviation organisations get at CASA. We have a strong relationship there. And of course, there is the insurance policy that the MAAA gets that buying power to procure. Part of that insurance policy is governed by the fact that we follow our MOP, our Manual of Procedures. So while there are not rules over what people should or shouldn't do in the broader sense, not following the MOP could challenge us in terms of CASA interaction or indeed insurance validity. So people need to remember that it's not so much a rule as a, if you like, a, a ticket to the dance. If you want us to help in a CASA sense or an insurance sense, we need to remember that the MOP is the guidelines and rules that we have to keep operating by. But getting to the COVID lockup, uh, lockdown situation and, and what it is that people now need to do, I, I am a strong ag advocate for clubs should open as soon as they are able to open. But the catch with this is that we all, all clubs, including my two, where I am sometimes a committee member, sometimes not, need to operate by the local government federal rules anyway. So the VMAA can't override health directives. We can't say that it's okay to fly, even though the chief health officer says that we should stay at home and not go outside and not see the sunshine. But as soon as the, the, the health regulations allow us to get out to our clubs, we simply need to follow the rules. And the current rules we talked about before. So m most of us here in metropolitan Melbourne, we can't travel more than 15 kilometres. So the club might be able to open, but if you live more than 15 kilometres from your club, you can't attend your club. Not because the VMAA says, simply because the health regulations don't allow it. And there are protocols that clubs do need to follow. That doesn't mean everybody needs to do all the things that businesses need to do to have customers, but there is that element of following the regulations about having people check in so that everybody knows who to contact if there were and it were issues coming up from a particular time. And it does mean keeping to the, uh, the number of people limits. The VMAA's provided guidance previously where we suggest it's hard to get a health directive specifically talk to error modeling. We're not that big in the government's eyes, but we like to suggest that we're a bit like golf. So if the regulations as they currently do, allow you to be in groups of two, if you are unvaccinated, or groups of five from only two households where everybody over 18 is fully vaccinated, that sounds like a perfectly good model to operate a model club on. Stay in groups of two, or five if everybody's fully vaccinated and maintain your, your distance between those groups. And I do know some clubs have worked out how to make that model operate. And essentially it is a group of two 
in the car park, a group of two in the pits, and a group of two in the pilot box. And you just have to make sure that you swap over between those groups in a nice controlled fashion. As long as those groups maintain their spread, it's just like playing golf. You have two people on one hole, two people on the next hole, two people on the other hole. That model appears to be perfectly accepted by the health regulation. So that would seem to apply perfectly well to our clubs. If clubs can manage to make that kind of arrangement work, absolutely clubs should be open. We're allowed to go out and do things like exercise for four hours, including golfing and fishing. Let's go out and fly planes. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, One of my concerns is that they have to be monitored. And, you know, we, we, we often get compared to golf, and, and, and I said to this off air that, a golf club has a receptionist sitting there that says, oh, Barry and Gary, thanks for coming. Um, could you show me your vaccination certificate just so we can make sure we can have more of you or blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Thank you very much. Okay. Most flying clubs don't have a gatekeeper sitting there that's saying, okay, we've got two people. You people need to be here. Can you show us your vaccination status? Because if you're not vaccinated, we're going to have to move you over here and whatever. So I, I think that um, it's been proven that some of the clubs haven't been able to effectively manage that kind of situation. So we've got this split thing where some clubs are opening and some clubs aren't. So I think sure. It's, it's a, a challenge. challenging problem. Uh, I think at any club, we would always expect that our members are going to realise that we all have to operate to the rules. But at any club, I think we all realise that some people don't like following the rules. And unfortunately, that does leave club committees in a very difficult situation. So if everybody followed all the rules and didn't do any of the silly things that our health, our health regulations don't want us to do, then it's quite an easy decision to open up. You do need to follow protocols. You do need to have cleans regularly on all of the contact surfaces. You do need to have appropriate check-ins. You do need to make sure that everybody is going to stay in their own little groups and maintain separation. But none of us can force people to follow the rules. And unfortunately, that's where the problem gets to. And it's not a course of action I advocate, but it's a course of action that is available. If members can't behave, the committee does have the power to close the club down. I don't like that as an approach, but I think our members have to take some responsibility here too. In the same way that you know, there are lots of people who have big parties at their houses when we shouldn't be. There are lots of people that um, drive to different places despite the fact that they should be staying close to home. In general society, there are people who break the rules. But we need to try and get those people to come along to the rules to remember that that means we can all do what we need to do. And in that sense, the clubs can stay open. It is a hard decision for the clubs. If they have a large number of members who won't play by the rules, they they are going to be placed in a challenging position. Absolutely. Gets down to, hey, members, we, we've all got to be well behaved because you might do the wrong thing, which just takes it away for everybody. Well, that was the crux of my rant a couple of weeks ago. And, and some people didn't take my rant too kindly, but... Um... To be honest, I didn't really care because I haven't got a lot I of time. I find it hard to believe that you were misunderstood, Andrew. I know. I, well, I don't um, – I wasn't too fussed because I'm not a big supporter of those people that do the wrong thing. And 
uh, often some of these people will say to me, well, what's it to you? Why are you sticking your nose into other people's business? Oh, well, it is my business and it's that person's business and that person's business. Correct. That has led to this situation that I know my home club is not opening because they can't trust the members to do the right thing, which has now yep. been proven. And so it, it has impacted my ability to go flying, other people's people. Uh, but I've got to, it came to mind as you were talking. Could there be, and then, it could be, could be, it couldn't be. Could there be potential insurance issue for clubs if there are members there that are at the field that should not be there because of whatever restriction that the insurance company, if there was a claim, could turn around and say, "We're not covering you because that person wasn't supposed to be at the field." It's it's possible. I think it would require in-depth analysis to determine whether that's true. But I, I think the question is actually has broader application. So if if we don't follow our current health directive rules, we potentially will be placed into a situation where clubs, not through the VMAA, but through the local governments, will be forced to stay closed, as indeed we've had in the previous lockdown. So certain organisations were simply not allowed to operate. I think if people don't operate the way everybody is supposed to operate, it is possible that we will be controlled from externally. And the broadness I was talking about, this applies also to our flying. So CASA gives us reasonable freedoms in what we're allowed to do as aeromodelers. And the reason we get those freedoms is because we have demonstrated that we are a responsible group of people and we operate to CASA's regulations, which is currently CASA 101, and we operate to our own set of protocols, which is the MAAA Manual of Procedures, the MOP. If a significant number of people don't follow the rules, be they MAAA MOP or indeed CASA regulations, and this includes things like you know, flying from your local park when it's not permitted to fly there, flying too close to people, flying over the top of other people's houses because you know you, know you can fly your drone over there and you can do it. Breaking those rules will result in CASA and local governments, federal, state, simply introducing stronger and stronger regulations on what we're allowed to do. And it is perfectly foreseeable that if a significant number of people can't demonstrate the ability to operate within what are current CASA regulations, that the CASA regulations will be tightened to the point where we can't fly model aircraft anymore. Yeah, that is true. I think that's the thing I keep on saying to people. It's, it's something your parents drum into. You just have respect for other people. And because there are consequences from our behaviour, even though you might not Correct. think so, that it will flow back. And uh, and that was the point that I was trying to make that some people didn't really agree with. But you know, as I said, I don't really yeah. care. No, like I say, taking that specific example, what harm will it do if I just fly my foamy up and down my street? Well, CASA will get the handle on that. CASA will say, this sort of stuff is unsafe. You can't fly model aircraft. Like just, just globally, they will say, we won't allow people to fly model aircraft. And that now impacts everybody. Yeah, well, I had um, Heath McDonald from CASA on the podcast. And, okay. And we talked about, um, you know, the remote pilot thing, like the the, the, um, the registration of aircraft and the monitoring of aircraft and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And and I think today, as an MAAA member, aeromodelling is sitting in a really good position as far as those regulations, that they won't be overly, overly onerous towards us as long as we're flying in an MAAA um, field. And that is really, really good that we're not going to potentially have little transponders or something sitting in the plane that's going to have to tell CASA where we are. But 
if we do the wrong thing, CASA will tighten it up and the next minute you know, we'll have transponders on every aircraft and they'll be Correct. monitoring everything. And as soon as something goes wrong, they'll ping you, they'll know who you are and all that kind of stuff. If you want that, do the wrong thing. Correct. The MAAA has done a fabulous job over the past few years getting to that state with CASA. So CASA is, to be honest, CASA is reacting, no, CASA is acting as a result of legislation that various um, state and federal groups are putting through that requires some kind of regulation around remotely piloted vehicles, what we call RC things. The MAAA did a lot of work with CASA to demonstrate that the, the, the controls that CASA required were already in place for MAAA members. We know where they're flying. It's an MAAA field. You want their address? We've got it. We know who those people are because they're our members. We also know how they're operating because we've got a manual of procedures. So we can demonstrate to CASA that all the control that they want around knowing who was flying where and when doesn't require us to have transponders. But it gets back again to this risk. So if we demonstrate that we can't follow our own rules, CASA will apply all of those rules to us as well. Yeah, that is true. So anyone, so the, the message is there, just do the right thing. <laughs> well, do the right thing on the basis of the rules are not onerous. We're trying to get them to any of them, whether they're VMAA directives, whether they're MOP, whether they're interpretations of health regulations. We're trying to find the way that people can continue to do what they do. Nobody, state and government um, officials notwithstanding, nobody's trying to stop us doing things. They're simply saying this is how you have to operate. So we just have to try and operate within those rules as best we can. And that is the difference, I guess, with our type of society because different societies might tell you to simply stop and not fly. At the very least, here we're allowed to fly. We just have to fly according to a set of rules. So it does get down to there's a set of rules. They're there for a reason. They apply to everything. They apply to our driving. They apply to our finances. They apply to the way we run our houses. We just have to recognise that they're not, draconian we just have to stick to the rules and we'll be able to keep flying that is true now one last question that relates to the vmaa and your role uh, i always like asking leaders of such association what their vision is and what they're working towards as you know in their in their role what is your vision with um aero modeling victoria or, or the the vmaa itself uh aero modeling i would like to see become a more accepted pastime than it currently is i think in the past it was a recognizable thing uh, people flew at their local schools at their local parks it was far more visible we are less visible now what would i like to get aero modeling to i would like to contribute to aero modeling being a thing that the general public knows about doesn't necessarily understand to a depth but certainly understands. We do a lot of displays, both at the here in here in Melbourne, the Sandown Hobby Show, but also at things like Avalon Air Show. For many people, their first reaction upon talking to us at our stand is, oh, I didn't know you still flew these. Mm. I, I think we need to get back from that. We need to not necessarily fly in everybody's streets, but have that kind of um, public visibility, where people know who we are and what we do, in the same way that not everybody knows where their local hockey club is, but they know what hockey is. I think we need to get aeromodelling to that. 
it's a bit technical and it's a bit geeky, but for those people who like those sorts of things, it's really interesting. And I know about it and I know where it is. So we're doing a lot of work in that regard to both bolster the public presence, help clubs do public displays, uh, join up with uh, groups like the Air Force Cadets who are trying to do um, some stuff this year that is challenging because nobody's allowed to go anywhere and do things. Uh, But, you know, we put a lot of effort at the VMAA into getting that public visibility of error modeling because I'm an error modeler. I want to keep flying my models. I want to have the things that allow me to do that, whether that's a flying field, whether that's a, um, a reasonable set of CASA regulations that allow me to do things that don't require me to fill in a book of paperwork every time I want to have a five-minute flight, through to not being shouted at over some fence because somebody doesn't like model aeroplanes and they think it's just a noise. I think I would like aeromodelling to get there. That then flows into what I see for the VMAA. I very much see the VMAA as helping clubs do what clubs need to do. So the people in clubs largely just wants to fly model aircraft, and that's a great thing. As I think we've touched on before, I like flying model aircraft of all kinds, many kinds. I think the VMAA's role is to help clubs be able to do that, whether that's provide assistance in being able to do what they need to do, or whether that's helping them understand what they need. So clubs who are challenged by local situations or interpreting regulations or the current COVID health directives. I see the VMAAs providing that um, ability to, as a blanket organisation, smooth communications and activities both upwards to the MAAA and downwards to the club. Help the clubs do what the clubs need to do whether that's advice, whether that's people, whether that's finances. Yeah, I think that makes um, a lot of sense. Actually, last night, in the middle of the night, I wasn't sleeping very well, and I did actually come up with a new um, advertising campaign for aero modelling in Australia. That was I don't know why it came into my head, but it was a good idea. Go with I'll, it. I'll tell, tell you about it later. Um, but, uh, <laughs> okay, so so enough of the VMAA. Let's get back to your, um, to your uh, hobby uh, activity. Do you enjoy building? Absolutely. I, I I will be honest. I scratch build. I kit build. I build from plans. I have a number of ready-to-fly models. I have a number of ARTFs. I, I, I do all of these things. I really enjoy building because I, I grew up in that crafty sense and I still do enjoy craft things. So I build things around the house and around the garden as well. It is one of those creation things I do. So I don't think I will ever lose that in my aeromodeling. I, I like to build aeroplanes from scratch the way I want them to be, but that doesn't stop me recognizing both the value and indeed sometimes the good engineering of some of our ARTFs and ready-to-fly models. I think some factories are doing some marvelous jobs there. So I I do have some of those, including some foamies. Yeah, you've got to have a foamy. (laughs) Got to have a foamy. If you don't have a foamy, then it's just that no-fuss kind of thing. So, So interestingly... I, I have a foamy, but essentially uh, ARTF foamies, but I also have a scratch built Depron model. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so I have a foamy, which is home built. <laughs> that is true. And you can do that with those, especially those indoor models and things like that. It's, uh, yep. Yep. Cut out a piece Absolutely. of foam. And you can, amazing what you can make. The, but the interesting thing with foam now is I have a, a foam model that's got a two-meter wingspan. Like we're, we're, yep. we're getting pretty big now with some of those. You, you can serious. do some impressive engineering with them, yes. 
That is true. That is true. Now, I don't know whether you've done this before. I like to do, do, you know, thought about this a lot and about, you know, what is, what is my future in the hobby look like? You know, in, in 20 years time, fast forward, hopefully by then I'm retired from work. Have you done that thinking about what your future looks like in the hobby? I, I, I have, I would like to, get better in a couple of different disciplines. And I would also like to fly some of the disciplines I've never flown. I've never flown power free flight. And I haven't flown large RC helicopters. I've got little indoor um, blade things, you know, MSRs. So I would like to get into some of the other disciplines that I've not done. And like I say, there's a couple of areas where I'd like to get better. I think I mentioned earlier that I have previously flown speed, control line speed, as a as a, just a bit of a sideline. It wasn't terribly serious. But the current pushes to get a bit more serious about that. So I guess I'm not looking to do terribly much more, but that's largely because of my background. I haven't gotten rid of any of the disciplines I've ever started flying. I just do some of them more or less over time. So to me, it's just adding more to that. I I am reasonably competent at building and finishing models. So I don't have a view to, you know, one of these days I'd like to build my own from scratch because I started doing that when I was kind of 15, 16. Um, sure, there's always that I want to get better. But, you know, I do know many people start with ARTFs and one of their goals is to build a model. Yeah, right. So I started building models. I still do. So I think for me, it's getting into some of the more specialized disciplines that I haven't played in. And like I say, free flight power would be good. The challenge with free flight power is just the flying field space you need. You you need to be close to a nice big field to be able to get sensible performance. But yeah, RC helicopters might be the next one. Uh, I think, you know, I've dabbled with little electric helicopters, but maybe a bigger electric heli- helicopter might be the next thing. Sounds like good. I've got a few of those and they're sitting there waiting to be used. <laughs> waiting to be used. Yeah. Well, Reeve, it's a time of the podcast where it's a, it's a question that people always look forward to hearing the answer to. And it's the final question. And it could be a hard question for you to answer based on your background, what you've shared with us. And that is what has been your favorite model? It, it is a hard one because there are many models that I have liked, but the one I'm going to pick is one that I remember well, and was certainly one of my favorites for a long time. So with its, history and its favoritism it's got to be my favorite model i mentioned that i got into control line aerobatics fairly early one of my one of my regular uh models was a small two and a half cc sized stunt model that i flew for many 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 years at local competitions and state competitions i flew at a number of state championships and it was an attractive little airplane it flew really well it was consistent and reliable and i flew it so much that in the middle of inverted flight in the middle of a state championships the wings folded up so it was one of those you know i must have flown that one a lot (laughs) i think simply because it was such a nice model and i flew it to the point where i flew the wings off it that's got to be a favorite model it was a junior nobler which is a an american design it it was an old design it was slightly modified i didn't have flaps great little airplane Sounds good. I love the names of some of the control line models. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and some of the history behind them. Yeah. Yes. The, the, there was quite a rivalry between some of the American guys about naming their models. That was, it's just fascinating reading at times. Yeah. Classic, classic sort of names. 
be better than the the today's. You know, you get an aerobatic models and extra a yak, a sukhoi, and an edge, and that's about it. You've got you know, be boring, but uh, or, or some of the classic um, UK trainers of the day, things like a junior sixty. Mm. What's that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh well. Well, Reeve, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast, and I'm glad I'm glad I got you on, and um, you shared a lot of great information for us, uh, especially around the control line stuff. Which is, it's funny, the, the, you know, the podcast is titled Flat Out RC, but we're talking about control line because, you know, it, it, it it's it's part of our error modelling story, and I think that um, a lot of us will get a lot of value about hearing about it. And uh, of course, thank you for your work with the VMAA as well. So keep up the good work, Reeve. Thanks, Andrew, and thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Big thank you to Reeve Marsh for joining me on the podcast, talking control line and radio control and VMAA and everything between, just a general chat, which was good to have Reeve on board. And thank you for joining me. I really appreciate the messages from people that uh, are happy with the podcast, which is good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, someone said to me the other day that, oh, I should get paid to do this. And I said, oh, yeah. There's not a lot of money rolling around the hobby at the moment. People's not going to give me any money. And, and I did say that if I got paid, it'd add a different level of expectation on me. Sometimes I just like that freedom to just be a bit loose and uh, don't have any rules that I need to stick to. So big thank you for joining me. Don't forget, subscribe to the uh, the podcast, no matter what platform. Leave us a nice review. That'd be good because I just want more people to join in. That's what I really want. And if you've got any good guest ideas as well, I re- I've never had somebody on from Western Australia. I don't know what it is. I know there's a time difference which makes it difficult, but we can record on the weekend. And if someone from WA would like to reach out to me with a good idea of a guest or if you want to come on yourself, please reach out. And Tasmania. There's somebody in Tasmania that I want to get on. Uh, want somebody from WA and Tasmania so we can... Then I can tick that box that says I've had someone from every state and territory in Australia. That'd be good. And a big shout out to those listening abroad. We do get a lot of listeners from overseas to all those people in the US. G'day from the land down under. Hope you're enjoying your flying. And again, if you've got any uh, good suggestions either in Europe or in the US or anywhere else in the world of some guests you'd like, flick me a message. Get onto the flatoutrc.com.au website, the FlatoutRC Facebook page. Send me a message. uh, Whatever way you will be able to find me. Even Instagram. Jump on Instagram and leave me a message. Anyway, I'll be back next week. We've got another good guest on next week. I already recorded the interview, so I know he's a good guest. So enjoy the next week. I'll be back. Let's go.